So running with endurance. Last week, we flashed back at the beginning to my ninth grade year in high school running cross country. Pastor Matt would have run with me. Um, Not sure who was faster at that point. I don't know if I was yet. Like, you beat me in modified. But the story I told is Coach Brown. So this was JV. And he looked at one of my teammates and said, how many legs do they have? And I'm like, two. How many legs do you have? Two. Then get running. And just the point is that he very bluntly was like, you have no excuses. And the idea that in Hebrews 11, we're looking at these men and women who are like us, that they were scared, they were fearful, they were nervous, they sinned, and yet they lived this lifestyle of faith, lifestyle of repentance, of continuing on. And this morning... I'm going to introduce for about five minutes, and then Pastor Matt's going to come up and take it from there, and we're going to look at our story. But I want to move forward a couple years to my junior year in high school, and Coach McLaughlin had come in, still talking about running with endurance and cross country, and I believe it was first year of him being there coaching, and he gave us a short story that had been written by a Beaver River runner Um, from a handful of years prior. I believe it was Eric Wallach. Um, And he had written this short story five or six pages after he graduated. And he reflected back on just some of his thoughts, his memories, and what it meant to him to run cross-country at Beaver River. Like, he talked about remembering the sound of Coach Brown's diesel car pulling into his driveway to pick him up on Saturday mornings and take him to school to get on the bus and remembering the bus ride and just the friendship and the closeness of his teammates riding to and back from the, the invitationals. And he talked about like his breakfast on those race days was a vitamin. You know, he just remembered every Saturday morning about three hours before the race, he would take this vitamin. He talked about what it felt like to be on the, the starting line for these races and what it meant to him to wear the green shorts and the, the orange top. And it gets to a place where he remembers what it was like to win the state championship meet for Beaver River, and Coach McLaughlin gave it to us to encourage us, to remind us who we were as Beaver River. There was this, in a sense, legacy or a heritage there of we win state championships, of look at these young men and women who've run before us, in a sense, have done well, and it encouraged us. It reminded us of the race that we were in and what it was about. So to introduce, I want to read Hebrews 12. We've been going through Hebrews 11, so we're going to Look at Hebrews 12, 1 and 2. So if you want to turn there, I told Matt about five minutes, which probably means closer to eight or nine, but who's timing? You didn't even start the clock yet, so we're good. So Hebrews 12, verse 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. So just a couple things that I want to pull out of that to set the stage, and then Matt and Ed and Nate are going to share a little bit, and just looking back at Pine Grove Living Hope through this lens. But the first is, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. But I want to draw our attention to the fact that we each have a race to run. Because here's the thing that if you don't know you're in a race, or if you're not in a race, you're not going to finish a race. 
So I think the first thing is we have to know that we've been given a race. There's been a race that's set before us. I think there's the big picture kind of race that all believers are called to share the gospel. We're called to glorify God with our lives. So that idea of that race, but each one of you has been given a specific unique race because of the time and the place you were born, the family you're surrounded by, the co-workers that you may have, the neighbors you may have, the unique giftings and personalities you have, the, the gifts of the Holy Spirit that you've been given. Each one of us has a race that has been set before us. Then I also want to draw attention to the fact that I believe as a church, as a local church, Pine Grove, now Living Hope Ministries, has been given a race. That there has been a race that is set before us that we're called to run with endurance. And that's why I want to look back a little bit at some of that because there's a lot of new people here that maybe don't know. Well, did the race just start a few years ago when all of a sudden the circus tent showed up in 2020 and now we started coming? That, that this is a race that I believe we as a church, as a congregation, have been given to run. It says, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. And again, this is specifically pointing back to chapter 11. And some of the men and women that we just started looking at that lived this lifestyle of faith. But the idea of great cloud of witnesses, I really believe the author is saying that it's bigger than just the ones I listed. It's bigger than all the saints in the Old Testament. It's bigger than the saints in the New Testament. But throughout church history, there's been men and women who lived this lifestyle of faith. And their testimony, their witness is meant to encourage us. Just like that short story was meant to look back, but be encouraged, be reminded that you're in a race, what this race is. Be reminded that you can run well, that you're like these men and women. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And I think we get the idea of sin. We know we want sin out of our lives. And this lifestyle of faith is a lifestyle of repentance. So we want sin gone because we know that can hinder us, that can slow us down. But it also says every weight. I just want to point our attention to that, that Sometimes there's good things in our life, things that aren't necessarily labeled as sin, but they could still slow us down from running the race that God's given you, given us as a church. And I think sometimes that's where traditions can come in, that they're not bad in themselves, and there was probably a day and a time when they actually helped them run well. But sometimes traditions can then slow us down at a certain stage in the race or the race we've been called to. They're not bad. We don't have to be critical of them. But I say that, like, is there anything personally in your life or us as a church that we need to lay aside because of the race that we've been given? And then finally, and probably most importantly, I want to make sure we get this, but verse 2 says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. See, we're not looking at these heroes of the faith from chapter 11 to worship them or to idolize them. We're not looking to them to get salvation. We're looking at them to be encouraged. I think they even help equip us. They help teach us some things. But the common thread we'll see throughout Hebrews 11, but also this morning as we look back at some of our story as a local church, it's not to fall in love with the stories. It's not to get all nostalgia and be like, oh, that makes me feel warm and fuzzy inside, and that's great. Yes, we can look at the stories, and we can appreciate the stories. But the common thread is going to be that all of these men and women who live by faith look to Jesus. And as we continue to go through chapter 11, I hope we see that even in the Old Testament, they were looking 
to Jesus. That was the lifestyle of faith. And as we tell a little bit of our story this morning about who we are, and I believe the race that we've been given, and we're just going to hit little pieces of it probably, but it was because they were looking to Jesus. They knew the race. But I want to, I hope this morning encourages us. It motivates us. It inspires us. It reminds us who we are, that we have been given a unique race here at Living Hope. And that maybe you're just coming in the last couple years, year, maybe you're just visiting, trying to figure things out, that God's given us a race to run. And to be encouraged this morning by looking back, again, some of them don't like it, but they're men and women of faith. They're part of this great cloud of witnesses that we can look at and be like, okay, I can learn from that. I'm going to keep running. There is a race here. I'm not going to get comfortable. I'm not going to get complacent but I'm going to keep running this race. So Pastor Matt, I told you we we're going to have somebody special come. Yeah. Special in many ways. <laughs> we won't get into that this morning, though. Matt is special. He's been a very special friend to me. Brother is good. I'm going to let Matt take it over from here. At some point, he'll, Nate and Ed are going to help in this story. So you want the microphone? I'm going to pull the chairs up. Can I pray for you? And yeah. We'll get rolling. So, Father, again, we thank you. Um, thank you for your faithfulness. And again, I just pray you would help us to see again this morning that faithfulness, your great faithfulness. I just thank you for the race that you've given. And our desire as a church is we would continue to be faithful, to obey you, to follow you in what you're doing, and to run with endurance. Thank you for Pastor Matt. Bless him. Encourage him. Just be with Nate and Ed also as they share this morning. But I just pray we would be encouraged this morning. I ask for that, that you would motivate us, give us energy, excitement for the race that you've set before us, that we would run with endurance and not shrink back, not get comfortable or complacent. Just bless our time, Jesus. Amen. Amen. All right. So, I mean, there's a few different reasons why I probably am, and Todd wanted me to do this primarily because... Uh, I'm going to be interviewing my dad and my uncle in just a minute. But what Todd was just talking about, I think, is really important for us when, when you're encountering in what your responsibility within this race or this story uh, actually means. So uh, if you've ever read a really, really good book, all right, raise your hand if you've ever read a really good book, one of those books that you just have a hard time putting down, all right? So my hand would not have gone up when I was you guys' age. I didn't... I really didn't enjoy reading. I read because I had to. The teachers made us. I didn't enjoy it until my brother gave me this one book my freshman year in college. And it was so good because he told me, he, he gave me a little word of warning. He said, I promise you when you finish this book, you're going to call me. I'm like, yeah, right. Number one, I don't intend to finish this book. But number two, a book there's no way could leave me in a place where I want to call you when I'm done. He was in Arizona at the time. Uh, or he, maybe he was home still. Um, but I finished this book, and it, the way that it ended gave you more questions than the book gave you answers. And I absolutely called him. I said, what does this mean, and where does this go? Is there another one after this? And it, it started this whole conversation with me where I start, began to fall in love with reading. And there were certain types of authors that would write a book that I couldn't put down. And when I became a teacher, I realized what those authors, what they did, is they had this concept called narrative drive. Narrative drive is the literary skill that causes you to never put the book down. It makes you want to know what's next. And some authors are really good at that, and some authors are really bad. And when I taught writing to my fifth grade students in Copenhagen, 
I outlawed two words. The students would use these, particularly the boys. They'd be writing, and they had no clue what they're supposed to do, and so then they would go, and then, and then they'd completely shift gears and go into some sort of a, a weird alien landscape thing, and then it would shift to, like, their farmers now, and the story would just ping-pong all over the place, and they thought the words and then were enough of a transition to get them to the next story. Spiritually speaking, unfortunately, we try to be and-then people. We just think that we can go along with life, and then somehow we're going to be miraculous or heroic or brave or courageous. It doesn't work like that. I, told my, I tell my sons, but I told my athletes a quote one time. Uh, most young men or most young athletes believe that they will rise to the level of their expectation. But in reality, they will fall to the level of their preparation. Most of the time, you will succeed at the level that you are prepared to succeed at. We are not and-then Christians. And living a lifestyle of faith means that we have to connect with the narrative drive that actually allows us to be faithful people. I have something that you can, I'm going to let you off the hook right now. Guess what? You don't have the authority or awesomeness to be faithful. If you go back to chapter 11 at the very beginning, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Or the things hoped for, the substance of things unseen. There is an aspect of faith that you can't generate inside of you. It is a gift that you receive from God. And so Todd said, you have two legs, I have two legs, so let's start running. I have two legs, you have two legs, so let's start enacting our faithfulness. There is nothing about faith that is exclusive to certain people in this room or in this world. Faith is something that is available to everybody because God pours it out in equal measure to anyone that would allow it to blossom inside of them. And it's the process of letting God blossom you in your faith relationships that's going to allow you to have authority and power right where you're planted. The cool, other cool thing about this story, this narrative drive, is it not only is there a role for you, but you are not subject to comparing yourself to other people's roles. I'm not going to have that ministry, so therefore, why should I even start? That was like growing up with my older brothers. They were always better than me at everything. And I was really annoying, but they let me play occasionally. And then I remember the day. I can remember the day and the moment when I finally realized I was better than my brother Jeremy at basketball. I can remember. He came to visit me at college. I had a year of college basketball under my belt. And he came, and, and it was, we were playing pickup. And also I realized, I'm way better than him. Like, and I felt guilty about it. Like I, like, I wanted to prove it to him a little bit and then back off because I didn't think I was allowed to. I was still afraid of him. But the realization, I probably had been better for years, but I didn't see it that way. And in that way, I went past somebody that I thought I would never be better than. And, and the, the problem that I, I realize is that when I, if I stay in a competition mindset, I will never become who God made me to be. I will just be either better or worse than the person walking next to me. I have to look at the author and finisher for my identity in the drive that God has placed me in. And so what we're going to do today is I'm going to call Dad and, and Ed, if you guys want to come up. 
I don't know if I should sit the two Zare boys next to each other. Maybe I'll have to sit in the middle, right? They might start fighting. They have lots of stories of, of fighting and arguing when they're children here. But what we're going to do is we're going to walk through a little bit. I think you guys just have to press the button on your microphones there. Let me see here. Check, check. Okay, we're good. Okay, so what we're going to do is we're going to walk through just a little bit of the story of, of Pine, Grove, Pine Grove Living Hope. And this will be pretty interesting because some of this stuff is a little odd because the way that things originated were a little bit different than how things go about right now. And so we're going to do this in three parts. And the first part we're going to talk about is how Pine Grove got started. And so we're going to start by asking Dad some questions um, because um, their, their father, my grandfather Vernon, was one of the first men that started the work here. Um, and, and Dad's going to talk just a little bit about some of the men and women who would have gotten these things started. And the, the problem is, you're not going to know who most of you, 90% of you, are going to have no clue who these people are that dad's about to say. But they're part of your story. They're part of your core identity of what you're sitting in right now. And, and what their faith response generated in their lifetime folds itself in to what you guys are experiencing. It's not silo ministries. It's domino ministries. And as theirs laid down, yours begins. And that's how ministry, that's how faith really works. So, Dad, can you tell us a little bit about the story, about how Pine Grove would have even started, about how, how Grandpa got um, brought into leadership, and just a little bit of the beginnings. Okay, there was a... Am I on? Oh, there you go. There was a... There was a young lady teaching school up at the Outer Creek School, uh, I'm not sure, even sure what, middle, middle 40s, and she, every morning she would have a little uh, class with the students, a prayer with them, and just a little class, or spiritual class, but she was astounded at what limited knowledge they had of any biblical principles or anything. And so she talked to her dad about it, and um, Mr. Nick Gingrich from Laville, who was a appliance dealer in Laville, and <clears throat> they contacted a couple of pastors in the area, and she said, we need to get something started for the children in that area. And so the first, uh, there was a Methodist church in, at the little, right next to Otter Creek that is just a little dead-end street in there, and that wasn't being used, and so they were they were given uh, the choice of using that for Bible school the next summer, and so they did. And then uh, the next summer they moved down to the old Pine Grove, what we call the old Pine Grove Church, on the corner of the Austin Road where the church was, and that's how the work started. And uh, Elias Sayer, who was pastor at Laval Mennonite Church at the time, uh, she contacted him, and he helped out, and then. The, just within a year or so, they asked my dad if he would consider going up there to church. And so that's the only church I ever remember going to as a little kid. We started when I can, my first memory was of, of that building of attending church there. And so there's a number of people that my dad was not pastor then. Uh, he helped out there and there was a number of visiting pastors. And then a, Mr. Leon Martin, who married a young lady from this area. He was from... 
Delaware, I think. Uh, anyway, he was pastor then for a number of years, and uh, uh, there was a lot of different uh, people that helped out there. There was a layman family, uh, Mosier families, uh, just regular, just what I would say, just common, ordinary people that had no idea what they were get, what they were starting. They were there because they wanted to serve. This couple from Copenhagen, uh, the Mosier. Uh, actually, Daryl and Aaron's great-grandfather and his wife came and, and assisted my dad and a number of them in the work. There was a Kennel family from originally from Canada that came over, and he was really good with music. He led music, and, uh, and children were picked up and brought. And uh, I know my dad said one time, he said, I think that we made a little mistake, though we, fought, we spent too much time with children and not enough time with their families. Because I know a lot of the boys would come until they were mid-teens or so, and then dad didn't come, so they didn't come anymore. It was kind of an old, it got, because dad wasn't there, they didn't think they needed to come anymore. But, it, but the, that was basically the, the beginning of the work. People who were farmers, were carpenters, painters, uh, just ordinary people came and helped out and, and, and made it work. And, and that's a great description of their dad, my grandpa Vernon, was a pretty ordinary farmer, trapper, uh, carpenter, uh, with a big family. And, and what I find really interesting is the way that he was placed into ministry was they had a night, that was at Krogan Mennonite? Yep. And there were seven guys, there were four guys? Okay, so there were four guys that they had selected that, that had a call to ministry, and they were going to ordain two guys that night out of those four. So all four of them prepared for that night. Possibly they might get the call. And what they did is they placed four Bibles or songbooks, four songbooks on the front bench, and the four men went up there, and only two of the songbooks had a card in it. And whoever picked the songbook with the card got ordained that night for ministry. And Grandpa picked the songbook, and Grandpa got ordained and placed at this church at Pine Grove. And what Dad and Ed saw, and you, either one of you can talk about this a little bit, is Dad and Ed saw immediately, and one of the things that you don't understand about when, when, when you're placed into ministry leadership, a burden comes upon you. And that burden isn't only just responsibility, I need to do a good job because I don't want people to think I'm a failure. It's actually a burden of the Lord to do things that you wouldn't have naturally done on your own. And I think that's what you guys grew up seeing. Can you guys talk a little bit about what you saw in, in Grandpa as his burden for Pine Grove? I recall on um, the night that uh, Dad was going to be, or that Dad... Uh, was ordained. Nate and I was uh, milking cows that evening, and uh, Dad just stood on the end of the barn with the doors open, just gazing up in the field. And after he was ordained, I recall Dad saying, so unworthy, so unworthy. Um, I, do, uh, I do remember when Todd texted me earlier this week and talked a little bit about Dad, Immediately, immediately, my uh, mind went to my mother's role. Uh, mother, mom would, would stay home and keep us brats from killing each other. 
<laughs> and so that dad could um, oftentimes two nights a week go up and do visitation in this area. Dad had a unrelentless passion for the people in this area. And that carried on down through the ages. So, so Dad, I want you to answer this question. And this really, to me, gets at the heart of what this is all about. Because, you know, I, I grew up in church my whole life. And on Sunday nights, we'd have to go to church after being in church all Sunday morning. And, and, and a lot of times, they would have guest ministry come in. And, and I remember sitting there as a young man saying, I just, I don't, I don't know why. Like, I, don't, I, I know this is all good information, but it, I don't see the why in any of this. And that question, whether I was a teacher or whether I was in church, that's the question that makes you want to turn the page. So, Dad, the question for you is, why do you think Grandpa and that generation that started this work, why do you think this was so important, and why do you think they were so driven to be faithful to this ministry? I guess I would start by saying a little bit what Ed said. He felt so un, uncapable of doing what he had been called by God to do. I remember him, there was a, a Mr. Erie Reynolds, pastor from Belleville, Pennsylvania, that was here when my dad was ordained. And dad talked to him the next morning. He said, I don't know what I'm going to do, Erie. He said, I only have an eighth grade education. And Erie looked at him and grinned. Well, Bernard, he said, you got one year on me. I finished school at seventh grade. <laughs> And profound, he was a tremendously gifted person, but he, he learned he, he learned by himself. He didn't go to college to learn, but he studied and learned. And I remember my dad studying and learning at home, too, for, for the gift, for what he was asked to do. I've got to go back to your question now. Uh, that, I, I think that generation was probably one of the first first generations that that caught the idea that we are more than just Christians living we are missional Christians. Yeah. <laughs> we we need to make a difference not only in our families and our church, we need to make a difference in the world. And I think that was probably the first generation I remember that really caught that concept and and wanted to make a difference outside of the closed-in community where, where they were living and serving. So that leads us, Ed, then to you guys. So you grew up in this church up here, you and Dad and your family, and, and other, others, obviously, the Mosiers, and there's lots of different families that came along as this thing developed. Um, but this was not easy, okay? Talk to us a little bit about, about just doing work in the Pine Grove area? <clears throat> when I grew up, I was a farmer. I was, my dad was a farmer. And when I became 18 years old, I knew I did not want to do farming for a living. Um, then the draft caught me. I got caught in the draft. I wound up in Richmond, Virginia, working in a Virginia home for incurable, taking care of people. And that had a tremendous effect on my life. I knew I wanted to take care of people um, in life. Um, after I come back and married my wife, um, I worked at a hospital 
taking care of people, uh, not only physically, but sometimes with their mental and sometimes with their spiritual lives. And that instilled in me all through life that I wanted to continue to do that. And um, thankfully, uh, my wife, after we were married, left her uh, home church and uh, came with me to Pine Grove area so we could take care of people. Yeah, so in the taking care of people, some of the stories that I've heard you guys say is that you guys would come to church in that little, and so if you haven't, if you don't know where they started, it's that little white church up the road, so if you don't go that way, I, I encourage you guys to go that way on your way home tonight, or today, and just pull into the parking lot, swing around, that's, that's where they started, um, and the, the building is, it's got chairs on a slant, so you walk all the way to the front, and then you turn and you go up the stairs, there's a, three rows of chairs, right, three think per so. row, um, and, and the back legs are like sunk into the floor so that you sit level. And so anything that happens at the top rolls all the way down to the front. Cabbage Patch doll head one time, I popped the head off. This is what, it rolled all the way to the front while dad's preaching. Um, unfortunately, you'll see my initials carved in the railing in the, in, the, in the balcony. This is just church, guys. This is a bunch of hooligans trying to go to church in this area. But, but they, dad tells a story where they would, get there early in the morning, Sunday mornings, grandpa would go in, they'd stay in the car, he'd light a fire in the front of the church, behind the pulpit, and then when the service was over, they would sweep the snow back out of the building because it never got warm enough for the snow to melt after their church service, every single Sunday. And for two weeks every summer, they sent up canvas tents all around that building, and they had VBS inside of a canvas tent at 90 degree heat some night, so, right? So with a, with a tent full of hooligans that they bust in from this whole area, we would go out and they call it canvassing. They would go door to door with a little invitation saying, we're going to have Bible school in such and such a week. Would you like your children to come? If you want them to, we'll pick them up. They'll have it and we'll bring them home. And so we had a, a little van that probably had 23 kids in it, and they would make multiple runs. They had a bus that they would pick kids up, and this is what they would do. This is, right? This is what they did. And after church, once a month, we would go to Colette's nursing home, or what was it, Bender's it was called too, just up, up the road a ways, and they would do a church service after our church service for the people that were at the nursing home. Just thing after thing after thing like this. So, so, my question for you, Ed, you can give me more color if you want to, because it was, I was a young man, so it was normal to me, but I knew that this isn't how most people have to do church. This is not how my friends who are going to the other churches are doing church. This is something different. Anything you want to add to that, Ed? Uh, just a humorous story about uh, Bible school. I had to be superintendent one year, and um, Following the sessions of uh, teaching sessions, we all reconvened to come back into the church. Usually, uh, the kids were given a chance to test or to guess how many um, was in attendance, and we had a closing prayer and whatever. Um, it was one evening or one time that um, a flying mammal happened to uh, come out of the woodwork and start, namely a bat, and started uh, coming around. And I see Andrea was smiling, she probably remembers it, went flying around, started counting heads. Well, needless to say, Bible school got over early that day. Yeah. And so, 
Let me tell you something about the interconnectedness of, of what we're, before I get to the why question for you, Ed, right? So I'm pastoring Abundant Life Church. It's a, it's a new church plant, and we've got some different people attending, and all of a sudden, a guy shows up, kind of a, a shorter guy, um, shows up one Sunday night. His, his wife had been coming for quite a while, and, and so we were able to communicate after the service, and, and he told me a story. His name was Jeff. His name is Jeff. He still attends our church. And he said, um, I want to introduce myself. My name is Jeff. My wife has been coming for quite a while, and I want to tell you a story. He said, I, I have had a, I've done a lot of things, and I've been a lot of places, and church was not anything I wanted to do. But I went over to my mom's house a, a little while back, and she had saved a bunch of stuff from when I was a kid. And one of the things that she saved was a Bible that I had received in eighth grade upon graduation from a vacation Bible school. And it was, it, it, my, my mom had saved it and put it in her closet, and she gave it back to me because she thought that I needed to start reading it. And I read it, and after reading some of this, I realized that I need to go to my wife and try to reconnect with faith. And I, I want to tell you that the name on the inside of that Bible is the name Vernon Zare, and I, I think it's your grandpa. I said, yes, it is my grandpa, and that's the same Bible school I would have gone to. And so this, this man, Jeff, and there are other stories like this, spent his life at eighth grade. He didn't want anything to do with faith and lived his life. But at some point, the Bible that he had received upon graduation from that Bible school brought him back to faith, and he still sits in the second row of, of our church every single Sunday to this day with his wife. And so the... the the domino effect or the, the layover effect of this faith still is happening right now. And some of you guys can remember those stories similar to that. And it might not be with Pine Grove. It might be somebody different that lived out their faith that has gotten you to this point. So, Ed, the question I want to ask you is doing all of those things, teaching the Bible school, being the superintendent, coming up and canvassing and driving cars illegally with tons and tons of kids that... Shouldn't have been in your car, right? Didn't have rules back then, apparently. Actually, it was in the back of my pickup truck. Officer, yeah. Where's Officer West? <laughs> right, yeah. That would have been a great patrol right there. Um, so, Ed, my question for you personally, and maybe you can speak on behalf of Edith as well, is why? Why did you do all of that? Probably um, not only in my father and my mother, but other Christian men and women during that time um, probably laid the legacy for me to continue on in their work. Um, I saw in them the passion that they had and the relentless passion that they had for people in the lives of people in their Christian lives uh, especially. And um, I guess it just um, came right back down to me to to, um, to do that in my life with Christ as well. So just the idea that, you know, you, you didn't go to some special school to do missionary work. You didn't have some advanced degree or nobody. You just felt this was my responsibility. I'm planted here, and I need to be a part of this. Yeah, my schooling when I went to school was uh, <laughs> not a great time. <laughs> my uh, children... My grandchildren, they, uh, they get 96s in, uh, in their schoolwork, and I tell them, I used to get the reverse. 
<laughs> Same numbers, different order. Yeah. <laughs> okay, and so that that carried on, and, and that's what I witnessed. I, you know, and I and it was a joyous time. Honestly, I really remember having a lot of fun. I mean. Dad tells the story of, of the church up here that the basement would flood, and so he'd have to roll his pant legs off, take off his socks and shoes, and wade through the water in the basement to get the sump pump going again to drain the basement, because that's where we had our Sunday school classes. They, it didn't have bathrooms in it, so they built, like, two raised platform above the water line um, with, like, really quarter-inch, half-inch plywood <laughs> walls. Like, it was as camp-like as you can imagine. And this was church. This was how we went to church. But then in 1991, they, they moved from the church here because the building was actually almost unusable at that point. They were kind of getting some flack about that. And they moved to the end of the Van Amber Road in Casterland and proceeded to be there for almost 30 years. And this is when Dad took over for Grandpa and began to be the, the, the lead pastor of this ministry. And sometimes endurance looks like going and doing really hard things against all odds. And sometimes endurance is not giving up on the core vision, even when other things seem to be dragging it away. And so the, 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 the thing that, that I grew up under those two different dichotomies, one going to church up here, and then the other one being a teenager and, and, and having a nice building. And we moved into that building, and they left us all of their plates. Like, there was a kitchen. You know, there was all of these amenities that we had never had. It still flooded, so that was a little bit like home. But um, all of a sudden, we had this, we had like a right building and a real church services, and it felt really good. But I can never remember a time, even when we were in Casterland, that Dad felt at home. It was just down the road. He had a sermon that none of you except a few of you guys were at. He had, it was called his I Have a Dream sermon. And in his I Have a Dream sermon, he talked about the next level of leadership. And Todd was in that service as the next level of leadership that God had already called, and him and Amanda didn't even know it yet. Felt it, but didn't know it. He also talked about in that I Have a Dream sermon about the fact that we must, and he he, he's not ever, he's a guy that gives great suggestions, but he's never a domineering man when it comes to spiritual things. He's always, as a pastor, wanted people to be led into their faith decisions, not told or, or driven. Good shepherds lead their sheep. They don't drive their sheep. And so he said, I have a vision that we have work to do yet in Pine Grove. There is still something. After 30 years of, of staying consistent in his ministry, there was still in him the desire and the necessity to be about the original vision of the work in this area. So, so Dad, I, and I know you, I'm not going to make you talk about yourself. I just want you to tell me why. Where, where do you think, other than being, which Ed will attest to, unbelievably bullheaded, <laughs> <laughs> Why did you never give up on the vision that originated this ministry? Well, I would, I would say part of it is, but uh, in Hebrews 12, and I wrote this down, sorry, Todd, to, <laughs> but I had it wrote down, we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses 
So we fix our eyes on Jesus and we do not grow weary or lose heart. I thought many times this is absolutely I am back on. I I thought a number of times in my ministry that I've had Man, I, this is home for me up here. I used to drive around up here just just because I enjoyed the, the drive around, the, the go through the places I've, that I picked up kids for Bible school and, and just look at the houses and wonder what's going on in their families. And some of them stayed connected when we moved down there, but other families didn't. But I, I thought to myself, how am I going to, to explain someday when I get to glory to the people that this great call of witnesses that are there that I grew up around and taught me and modeled Christianity to me in a way that I had never experienced before. How am I going to explain to them that, that we did not keep the work up that they started? <clears throat> so I was not only that obviously, but I was driven never in my life once that I ever think that, that this was not where we needed to to, to go back to. And so Todd and I talked about it a number of times over breakfast in the morning, and I would push Todd. I said, Todd, we, we got to get started. We got to get moving. And he said, Nate, he said, we're, we're not quite ready. And he was right. He was absolutely right. And when the time came, when, we, when God clearly, unmistakably, just made it happen, and we, Todd and I had nothing to do with it. It just came. So there's a story of a plant called the Chinese bamboo tree. And when you plant Chinese bamboo, it, it sprouts up in the first year about this much. And then you see nothing for about six years. It stays right there. And then in the seventh year, that tree, that plant grows 90 feet in 12 weeks. You can actually literally watch it grow. Having not seen it grow at all, no change for almost six years. And so what, what was happening in, in that season of this ministry was an incubation. And you might feel like you're being incubated. And that's exactly what God says in Genesis chapter 1. It says the spirit was hovering over the dark, incubating as a mother, chick, a mother hen would or a mother bird over its nest. It was the Holy Spirit was just preparing and incubating and keeping a work that was waiting for the moment where God said, now it's time to grow. And look at this. This is pretty near 90 feet in 12 weeks, from my estimation, of what has taken place over the last two to three. Now, if you guys get a big head and think that, look at this amazing thing that we did. Let's make it even amazinger. Then, then you've lost the heart of what this is. What God is saying is, I'm the one who originates the faith. The narrative drive comes from me as the author and, and finisher. The question for us, whether it's our church over in Laval or your church here or really any church in our area that, like Dad said, catches this vision of there's more than just gathering each other together for a giant little spiritual fellowship meal so we can feel good and fuzzy about how good we're doing as a church. Now, we have something to do, and especially in this generation. It doesn't matter how old you guys are. It doesn't matter how disconnected you feel from what's happening. Like, there's chaos swirling all around us. And if we as adults didn't learn anything from the children's talk today, then we're not paying attention to life. Because when the world gets darkest, your light shines brightest. 
That's the reality of being a Christian right now. You should not be fearful of the chaos. Don't participate in it. Shine in the midst of it. And I promise you, your coworkers, your family members, those people that you're interacting with, they're going to be drawn to something way bigger than what you could have in your natural talents and abilities ever brought them to. You know, and, and you guys are sitting here. There's a cloud of witnesses right here that are in the midst of their calling. And I, I hope what you guys have heard is, like, you know, two guys that are, that are just regular farm boys spent more times with their ag jackets on at Beaver River than anything else growing up, just being diligent, being hardworking. But they saw in their forefathers something that they felt they needed to respond to. And what they won't talk about is they both were willing to lay down their preferences, to lay down other opportunities, to lay down other things where there would have been more people and it would have been easier and it would have been more collective to stay faithful to something for years and years and years. You know, sitting in the back, Roger and Kareen have been, been here for a long time. Kareen has been teaching preschool, Sunday school for 35 years. And every Sunday, I remember we used to like, Kareen, you know, we really need to get you somebody else in here. She's like, I don't want to break. I, I just want to keep, this is a big deal, teaching these kids. And she just kept doing it and kept doing it and kept doing it. And so I, I hope you guys, that's, I hope that's what, that, what you guys heard, not just a bunch of stories about things that happened 30, 40, 50 years ago, but something that you can actually grab a hold of and realize that that was their time, this is our time. And there's a lot of work yet to be done. I would like to make one, uh, one comment yet. Um, the awesome faithfulness of God through the years all of our needs were always supplied with workers and, um, and what have you. Um, there was a prominent minister in this area when Dad first started up there that told Dad, you're wasting your time. And I'm glad Dad didn't take his advice. And we'll, oh, go ahead. Yeah, they, uh, there was uh, work to be, uh, on the back wall, before we put the, the, the last pine layer on, uh, Todd invited people to write names in there and write verses or whatever on that wall. And on this back wall, straight back, there's a, a number of the names of the original people who were at the start, helped to start the work there at Pine Grove. Their names are writ, wrote on the walls back there. So they hear you and you, where you're singing and when you speak and when you're in and out and visiting, they hear you and because their names are there. And the other thing is that so, I was so driven by them. They, they did not know that they were being missionaries. They did, they did, they did, it was just so normal for them to do what they were doing. If you just said you're a missionary, they would, they would have laughed at you. No, we're not missionaries. Missionaries go overseas. We're not missionaries. We're just, we're just people that are doing what we feel God's called us to. And, to keep that in our, in our heads together, that there's still work to do. The other thing, one of the last things that, that I would just like to remind us, for myself as, as well as for them, we, they were writing their Acts 29. There's 28 chapters in Acts. I get to write chapter 29. You get to write chapter 29. They were writing their chapter 29. And that's one of the 
thing, I want to make sure, I remember thinking about this a number of times when we were at the church, that I want to make sure that I live to see my, in my Acts 29 that we have a building here and are serving in this area. And look at, look at what's here, and God has made it happen. And if Dad was here, Dad would say to you people, <laughs> keep on keeping on. <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. Okay, Todd, we're going to turn it back over to you. Awesome. Thank you, gentlemen. Thank you, Matt. I have to be careful because I have a lot of stories, too, but we're not going. I want to just quickly connect being at the end of the Van Amber Road, those 30 years and getting back here, just so you guys hear that piece of the story. And I know John and I were on leadership at the time, and in the end of 2019, again, it Nate had mentioned it was getting clearer and clearer. We were called back here, and the time was, we didn't know a date, but then um, I remember talking to John, and I had talked to Matt a few times, Abundant Life meets in the evening. Like, it kind of feels like we need to step towards the Watson community. We didn't have property. We tried a couple places. Things weren't opening up. I mean, this was probably about five years that we really felt focused. Tim was part of the leadership in Nothing was there, and we just decided, let's, it feels like God's calling us, the idea of faith, step towards where he's calling you. And again, this wasn't a super risky move. We're going even to a newer, nicer building. Um, one thing we have now is we don't have a basement, so we should be good with the flooding piece of it. So um, if we have to pump water out of here, we have bigger issues. But And Matt reminded me this Friday, and I don't know as I ever recognize the significance of especially a handful of the core people that were there because people got on board pretty quickly like we brought to the congregation I think it was in October like we're gonna beginning of the year we'd like to start going to abundant life stepping towards that just opening up and again through prayer people were on board but I think the concern I don't know if that's the right word but what was there is like we don't want to lose our identity we don't just want to get swallowed up and even just become abundant life as great as they are. But God has, and I think in that, I don't know if we would have put it to words like this, we knew God had given us a race. We knew we had a vision, and there was a little bit of concern. Like if we move, it's just, we're just going to get swallowed up as all of that. And again, we see God's faithfulness through that, that his race for us, his vision for us was bigger than all of that. And it was in that step of faith in the beginning of 2020 that really felt like, yeah, the bamboo plant really started growing. Nothing to do with us. The roots had been growing for since the early 50s. And we get blessed to kind of see this huge growth. And again, I pray every day it keeps growing. Um, we moved to Abundant Life and started meeting there in January and February. Nate had a dream about being back at this property. We owned the property and a month later. A um, couple months after that, we had the red and white or yellow and white tent up. People from the community slowly started coming, go to Abundant Life in the, in the winters, 2021, laid the pad for this. I think 22, the building goes up. October, we're meeting in this building. Um, and here's what I want to leave us with. This picture of a giant sneaker keeps coming into my head. We're, the race isn't over. Like This building and being here was not the finish line. This is like a giant sneaker. 
Like when you run, you want good sneakers. It'll help you run better. It's convenient. You might not get the blisters as quick and all of that. This building is just like a giant sneaker. It's meant to help us run well. It's comfortable. Likely it's not going to flood. But this is just a means that we keep running this race. Like we're not even close to done. Like I love vision, so if you, if you want to hear some dreams, talk to me. I'm already making Bruce nervous. But this isn't it. For one, there's many, many more people in this community that I want to be looking to Jesus as their author and finisher. But thank you, Nate and Ed. Thank you, Edith and Ruth and so many others that have just been faithful. And if you ask me the why, there are a lot of it, the way they've loved me and walked with me. Um, been a local church. It's like, I want more people <laughs> to experience that goodness. I'm just going to pray for you, or I'll keep going. So God, we thank you so much, Father. We recognize, first and foremost, you are so faithful and so good to us. And I thank you for glorifying yourself through these men and women over the years, and I ask that you would continue to glorify yourself through us as a local church in this community, that your greatness would be known. And I thank you for this morning. It was good. Continue to encourage us. Continue to give us the energy. Continue to give us eyes to see what you're doing. That we'd be willing and obedient to throw off any weight or sin that's hindering us, Father, from running the race that you've given us. Father, because we want more and more people to be worshiping your son, Jesus. Just bless each one here today. Bless them. Give them rest. Encourage them. Pour your love out into each heart here. Thank you, Jesus. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.